The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. This Easter tide, this strange spring where cherry trees and the coronavirus bloom alongside each other, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church is wrestling with the question, what will it take to rise from the ashes? How can the empty tomb empower us and inspire us as we battle against this pandemic and its devastating effects? As we follow the resurrected Christ through this troubled season, we are considering a challenge God put to the faithful after a series of tumultuous events that occurred a long time ago. In the aftermath of great devastation, God called on people to heal and rebuild the world. God called these people oaks of righteousness. Listen again as God describes these mighty trees in this passage from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, beginning with the third verse. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Our second reading for today comes from the book of Job. In this passage, Job bemoans his fate. He complains about his friends and he complains about God. Still, Job stands firm in his belief that there is a redeemer who will one day stand alongside him. Listen now to Job chapter 19, beginning with the 19th verse. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones cling to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me, never satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. This is the word of God for you, 
the people of God. Thanks be to God. We live in a historically significant moment. That's what we say when we can catch a breath, when we can take a few seconds to assess the big picture. We, we nod soberly. We say this still unfolding crisis has already secured a spot on the timeline of significant events in world history. This is undoubtedly true. Few moments in history have captured planet Earth's attention as effectively as this pandemic. Every culture, every nation is battling the virus. The cost of this fight, the human cost, the social cost, the economic cost will be felt by everyone. But, as is becoming increasingly clear, the burdens shouldered by individuals and families will vary greatly. Consider this. The United Nations estimates that the fallout from this pandemic could effectively double the number of people in the world who are on the brink of starvation, lifting that appalling number from 135 million to 265 million souls. The issue, says John Swinnon, director of the International Food Policy Research Institute, is not an immediate food shortage, but logistical problems brought on by the pandemic. Problems that could result in delayed planting, harvesting, and transporting food. The scope of this crisis is mammoth. The, the ripple effects made by this event will be with us for decades. I wonder, does acknowledging the enormity of this moment help us? Does saying we're in the midst of a calamity of unprecedented scope focus us? Does it instill resolve in us and, and an urgency to do whatever we can to right the ship? Or does it frighten us, overwhelm us, turn us inward, shrink our hearts? I'm not sure. This, this past week, I, I feel like we entered a new chapter in our national response to this pandemic. I call it the grumpy phase. Do you sense it too? A few weeks ago, we were firing off I love you texts and marveling at humanity's ability to pull together when times get tough. But now cracks are emerging in our esprit de corps. In the past week, we've witnessed public protests against social distancing. We've had a front row seat to disputes in the media and at the highest levels of government over the effectiveness of certain drugs. In a time when people are intent on making educated decisions, misinformation has been spreading like, well, like a virus. Graphica a company that analyzes social media trends, is tracking the growth of both 
right-wing and left-wing conspiracy theories related to the pandemic. In Great Britain, authorities report that people have made over 50 attempts at burning down various cell phone towers in the country. Wait, what? Why? The impetus behind this vandalism is a truly wacky online rumor that cell towers are spreading the virus. At the same time, closer to home, stories are now surfacing about hucksters and cheats who have stolen government stimulus checks intended for people desperate to buy diapers, to put food on the table, to pay the rent. Do we feel edgy and grumpy? Oh, yes. For a few brief weeks, our enemy was the disease. Now, though, our energy and our ire is shifting. We've acquired a fresh target, other people, right? Every day, this pandemic confronts us with daunting circumstances and vexing choices. Under all this pressure, people are being people and being people, some of our responses are less than helpful. This, I think, is part of the hard learning emerging from this calamity. We are all tumbling to the fact that this pandemic is more than a health crisis, more than an economic crisis. It is a moral crisis. And that recognition sends us straight to the good book. The book of Job describes one of the world's most famously tragic figures. Job is a pillar of his community, a righteous soul, a, a generous man, an individual whose good life is abruptly and painfully upended. Job loses his livestock to robbers, his pension plan goes belly up, his family members succumb to a disease, and then Job himself becomes sick. The Bible sketches a stark picture of Job's rapid downfall. Eventually, we find him sitting in the dust, his body covered in sores, his life in ruin. His best friends barely recognize him. We talked about this part of the story back in March, and as far as first responders go, Job's friends do pretty well. When they arrive on the scene, their, their impulse is to hunker down alongside their buddy in the ashes and say nothing. They accompany him in his suffering. They show solidarity for their brother. These actions, these initially caring steps are powerful and holy. But this is not where the story ends. Not for Job, not for us. After sitting in the ashes for about a week, Job's friends grow restless. They move into the grumpy phase. They ask, why is this happening? What brought this load of bricks down on Job? They assess their friend's tremendous suffering, and they ask hard questions, moral questions. This ill will that ripped Job's life to shreds, 
must have come for a reason. Conspiracy theories start to bubble up. God must be angry. Angry with you, Job. Stop you into the ground angry. This situation has got to be your fault. A painting by romantic English poet and polymath William Blake captures this not-so-subtle shift in tone, Job's friends turning into Job's accusers. They lay it on thick, chapter after chapter, for, for hundreds of verses, Job's friends list all the mistakes that he must have made, all the reasons God must be royally hacked off. There's just one problem with all this speculation. Job's friends are wrong. This is made clear in the very first chapter of Job, and later in the book, God shows up and declares the same. The evil that happens to Job is not his fault. All this suffering is not some cosmic payback. So why then does the good book spend so much time showing Job's friends playing the blame game? Jonathan Haidt, psychologist and author of The Righteous Mind, argues that humans are exceptionally good at coming up with explanations for why things are the way they are. And surprise, surprise, most of our explanations defend our deep-seated hunches about who is right and who is wrong, who deserves help and who doesn't. Our capacity to reason, says Haidt, is driven by our prejudices. I think height is right. And I also think this explains why we're getting grumpy right now. The moral complexities of this moment are perfectly suited to setting our teeth on edge and propelling us back into the arms of old tapes about a vengeful God and humans who deserve the calamities that drop out of the sky. The book of Job understands this dynamic. It, it reminds us that, that human suffering and anxious times tempt us to go after each other, to blame each other. In, in today's passage, Job says to his friends, enough, have pity. The reasons you're offering for my suffering make no sense. And then Job pivots. He, he, he swings away from conspiracy theories and anxious debates about who's at fault to make a startling claim. In the midst of the god-awful mess that my life has become, says Job, there's one thing about which I am certain. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side. In Hebrew culture, a Redeemer, a Goel, is someone, usually a friend or a family member, who rescues you in a time of trouble. 
If you were in jail, a, a redeemer would come and testify on your behalf. A, a redeemer would bail you out of prison. A redeemer sets you free. Somewhere out there, Job asserts, I have a redeemer. Write it down. Heck, I'll scratch these words on a stone with an iron pen. I'm certain that I do not deserve this calamity. I'm confident that justice will prevail. Someone will come. Someone will pull me up from the ashes. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job's words have been stuck in my head this week. Maybe that has to do with the fact that I've been walking around humming Handel's setting of I know that my Redeemer liveth from the Messiah ever since Christina Kay sung it so beautifully in last week's service. I've also been thinking about how Christians see Jesus, the, the resurrected Jesus, to be the Redeemer that Job describes. Ultimately, Christ is the one who stands alongside us in the ashes. I do trust in this truth. Mostly, though, this week, I've been pondering the strength of Job's conviction. He's incredibly sure, so doggone sure, that justice exists. Really? Job, you, of all people, believe that there is a redemptive force in this world full of suffering? Has this sick, sore-covered man lost his mind? Is he forgetting all the unmerited pain he's endured? Catholic theologian Richard Rohr writes that suffering tends to lead us in one of two directions. It can make us very bitter and close us down, or it can make us wise, compassionate, and utterly open. This is the fork in the road where Job stands, the same fork we all occupy right now. Job's friends tempt him to choose a bitter path, the well-worn path of grumpy recriminations, tired prejudices, and endless speculation about people who deserve to sit on ash heaps. Instead, Job gives voice to a brave hope. A redeemer is on the way. Someone is coming to my rescue. I know this to be true. Within weeks of the virus outbreak in New York, members of this congregation who work at a Brooklyn-based printing company converted its operation into a factory manufacturing protective gear for doctors and nurses. Thus far, Gaulle Visual Solutions has made and donated over a half a million face shields. You have an important choice to make, says Job. He's looking straight at us. His eyes stare up at us from the pages of the good book. He leans toward us, toward all of us who are caught up in this time of suffering and worry. Don't, Job whispers, don't 
give in to cynicism. Trust me, don't allow your energies to be co-opted by voices of rancor. Don't get sucked into a fresh spiral of hate by finger-waggers and, and conspiracy theorists and angry pundits. Take the path less traveled. Look for redeemers. Hook yourself into this holy work. Pour yourself into healing. If you do this, says Job, if you make redemption your passion, your organizing principle, if you write, I know my Redeemer lives with an iron pen on the walls of your heart, you can be sure God will stand alongside you and all the other tall trees rising from the ashes. My friends, in this challenging time, approach life with peace in your hearts. Have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen.